Our scripture text uh, for this evening comes to us from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something, some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So ends the reading of God's word. Some of you have probably heard, maybe almost all of you have heard of the name of John Piper. Um, well, he's a Baptist and a charismatic And quite frankly, I'm obviously not either of those things. Uh, There are a few preachers living today who I admire more. Uh, One of the reasons I think much of him is that he likes to say and do things that if you look at at least at them superficially, you might conclude that maybe he's lost his mind. And it makes you pay very close attention to what his his real meaning and purpose. And uh, you have to think about what is it he's really trying to get at. Uh, I think that's not so much different than what Jesus did. Um, he said things like, you know, you need to hate your father and mother and cut off your right hand. Now, did he really mean that we're supposed to do those things on a very literal level? No, well, not really. One example in, in his own life, John Piper's life, is uh, the manner in which he prays in front of his congregation for his children. Now, you think about how you might pray if you had that opportunity uh, in front of the congregation. How, how you might pray for, their, for them to grow up and, and love the Lord and have, you know, get a good education, get a good job, get married, and what, what have you. Uh, and uh, while I'm sure he probably prays for those kinds of things uh, for his children, and maybe so even so publicly, uh, I, I don't know too much else about the details, but I know that sometimes at least that he prays or has prayed. The children go to the utmost ends of the earth for the name of Christ and die as martyrs on the mission field. And he's quite serious uh, about that. Now, I know that sounds a bit crazy, and maybe it is. I don't know anywhere in the Bible where he and someone actually prays for persecution or prays for martyrdom. Uh, even Jesus prays that the cup would be taken from him if it were possible. But this prayer that he prayed, it certainly points out what he really values in this life. And what's valuable in this life is not this life itself. But it's the one to come. And therefore, 
we ought to live our lives with this perspective constantly in mind. We are not to be focused on being secure and comfortable on this life, but living for, in a way that focuses upon the eternal, not the temporary. Now, if Piper is wrong to pray this way, I think his error is not half as bad as the error of our prayers, which are simply centered on living comfortably in this life and getting along well and having enough material things to make ourselves comfortable. Especially as we think about this passage this evening, it reminds us of this fact. It reminds us that persecution, difficulty, suffering in this life is not really to be feared, but is something in which we ought to rejoice, in fact. Well, this passage gives you six commands in regard to persecution, three do's, and three don'ts. So the title of the sermon is The Do's and Don'ts of Persecution. Now, it's not an instruction on the proper way to persecute people by any means. That's not my purpose. But rather, how we face persecution as believers. Now, it would be convenient if all the don'ts were first, and then maybe the do's later, or maybe the do's first, and then the don'ts. So they're sort of intermingled, so that doesn't work out in such an easily memorizable outline here. But... Um, it's interesting that these do's, none of them commands you to, or tells you to flee or play, pray for relief. Uh, although it's not necessarily wrong to pray for relief or to necessarily flee persecution at times. Rather, here they are, these six do's and don'ts. First, don't be surprised by persecution, but do rejoice for you are blessed when persecution comes. Don't suffer as a criminal or a meddler. Don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian, but do praise God that you bear his name. And finally, do commit your souls to God while doing good. So that may not be an easily memorizable outline for us this evening, but maybe that just gives you uh, an idea of how we're going to proceed. Don't be surprised by persecution, but do rejoice for your blessed. Don't suffer as a cr criminal or meddler. Uh, but don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Do praise God that you bear his name and do commit your souls to God while doing good. In verse 12, Peter tells his readers that they should not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among them, which comes upon them for their testing, as though something strange, some strange thing were happening to them. Now this word surprise in our text is related um, linguistically, etymologically, to the other Greek word in our, uh, that's translated strange in our text. So, in other words, you know, strange means something that's out of the ordinary, right? It's, it's different than what you expect. And when you're surprised, something maybe out of the ordinary, or maybe say strange, occurs to you. Um, and that causes a certain emotional reaction. So to par paraphrase, if I can make up my own English word here, Peter says that they should not be strangeized as if something strange were happening amongst them. So there's a little bit of a play on of words here. Now, this word strange also appears earlier in this chapter in verse 4 when Peter discusses the fact that unbelievers feel that it's strange 
that Christians do not follow them into their debauchery, into their worldly form of life. So there is a very clear connection between all these words and these, these verses. It's not strange that the world thinks that Christians are strange. And therefore, Christians ought not to be strangeized when they are persecuted by the world. We're different than the rest of the world, and people often dislike those who are different from them. Remember way back in 1983, which, you know, a lot of you here weren't born then, but back in 1983, there was an advertisement for a series of Time Life books, uh, which uh, in, the, in the advertisement, they're, they're, it's at the Vietnam Memorial at Washington, D.C., and there's a little boy, he looks up to his father, and he says, what's Vietnam? And the announcer says, a question a child might ask, but not a childish question. Not so long ago, uh, my, my daughter asked me, why does the government persecute believers in chi China? Uh, that's also not a childish question. Uh, it's a very good question. We can think about why is it that persecution happens? Why do people persecute Christians, whether the governments or otherwise? Throughout the history of the church, there have been many reasons for persecution. If you go back to the early church, many times Christians... Uh, uh, were misunderstood, and um, I mean that's that constantly is the is the case throughout history. But it, that was that was the case, especially in the early church. Many Roman Christians, or excuse me, many Romans thought Christians were cannibals uh, because they engaged uh, because they because they ate what what people thought was or what they, they, there was rumors about people eating this dead guy's body and drinking his blood. Or they thought they engaged in incestuous relationships because they were called to love their brothers and sisters. And normally they worshipped before dawn or after nightfall on, on Sunday uh, because slaves had to work during the day and couldn't get away from that. And so those were times when they could gather with other believers to, to worship. So people thought, wondered, oh, they're doing things in the dark that seem uh, nefarious. Well, probably the most common reason for government persecution was that the government considered Christians as being guilty of some form of treason uh, because they refused to bow down and worship the image of Caesar or burn incense to him. They see the government wanted everybody in the empire to acknowledge that the highest position in the universe, the highest power that existed was Caesar. Now, you can have all your different religions and whatever, worship how you want, but one qualification is, above all that, you have to acknowledge Caesar. Uh, that way, we can be united as a society, as, a, as an empire, um, we can be different in our language and our cultural backgrounds and all that and have different religious observances, but we want to acknowledge Caesar as the highest power. When you go back and think about China, why are, is there persecution there? Uh, it's for similar kinds of reasons. The government is officially atheist. Therefore, the highest power in the universe, as far as they're concerned, uh, for, and what they feel that should be the, for the Chinese person, is the Chinese government. There is... In their mind, there's no higher standard than the Chinese government to which it can be judged, subjected. And so it teaches you to believe 
that it is always right because how can you judge the highest standard? It is the standard by which other things are judged. But we as Christians acknowledge there is a higher authority. And that means that we, times we can judge that governments are wrong, where people in the government do things which are wrong. We're willing to acknowledge and submit to the government because it is instituted by God. But we do not believe in Christ, or we're not a Christian, because the government sanctions it or tells us to be a Christian. We do so because it is right, because God is real, and he has commanded his people to worship him. We have a higher loyalty than to civil governments. And that oftentimes looks treasonous. When you have a higher loyalty than the king or the president or whoever, then it suggests maybe you're not loyal to the country. So they, uh, government leaders fear and want to control those kinds of elements within their society because they want to bring stability or uh, ease to their ability to rule the nation. So when persecution happens to those in China or to those in America or in the Middle East or wherever, it should not make you feel that anything strange is happening. This is a normal thing. It is common for Christians to run against the grain of the way in which the society around us wants us to operate. It's been the, the normal lot of true Christians throughout history, and so we shouldn't be surprised that it is the case today. Jesus said that a servant is not above his master in Matthew 10, 22-24, and therefore the world hated and persecuted him, uh, so the world will do the same for his servants. You know how often when you feel the ire of the world uh, or you hear about Christians being persecuted, how, 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 do, how often do you react harshly or angry or with some feeling of, of self-righteousness that, that somehow you ought to fix these problems that exist in the world that cause you and other believers not to be respected in the world? Truly, there is a sense in which we can have a kind of righteous indignation when we hear about these things happening. Uh, we can acknowledge that these things are bad. They, they, they go against what God has commanded, and therefore uh, they are detestable. But oftentimes when we think about these things, we just think primarily about our own personal comfort. Did Jesus, what did he do? What did Jesus? What did Jesus do? Did Jesus preach political reform to try to fix these problems? Did he try to become a vigilante and punish those who sought to do him harm? Did he seek to establish a Christian nation or homeland on earth so that his people could be free in this world from the torments of the wicked? Obviously, no. And so it seems questionable that if your first response to hearing about persecution or enduring persecution is wanting these kinds of things. It was in Jesus' plan that Christians are to be persecuted for their faith. And therefore, it's truly not strange when Christians are persecuted. Now, why would this be God's plan for Christians? Does not he care and love for them and protect them as a shepherd? Well, of course, he does. But his objective for you in this life is not primarily your comfort and security in this life, in this world. 
It's rather that you would be a builder of God's kingdom, the church, as opposed to the kingdoms of this world, and to be prepared to enter into the world to come. In many, if not most of these situations, rather than flee or argue your way out from persecution, rather you ought to embrace them as God's means for you to achieve his kingdom goals in your life as he strengthens you by his spirit to endure difficulty. So first of all, then, don't be surprised by persecution, but do rejoice for your blessed. Verse 13 brings this out quite clearly when he says that to the readers that you should, uh, uh, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Now you might say here, rejoice, really? Now how can you, how can you rejoice in suffering? Endure, maybe, but rejoice? Now, come on, Peter. You know, think of the word rejoice. And what's the root word of the word rejoice? It's joy, right? How is, how does, how does joy and, and suffering, how do these things go together? They seem like they're antithetical to one another. How can you have joy when you are suffering? They are so contradictory. But this is exactly what Peter is saying here. You are to rejoice because you are going to be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. These sufferings that the Christians endure are intended in some way to prepare them, prepare you for Christ's coming when his glory will be revealed. Back in verse 12, it says that believers are suffering a fiery ordeal. The term seems to have had its background in the concept revealed in the Old Testament and it developed during the intertestamental period when Jews were persecuted for their faith in Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the image of a fire being used to refine and purify, as in the case of smelting iron or other metals. It signifies the painful process of trials that the Lord often employs to refine God's people, to remove sin from their lives and draw them closer to God. Well, for the moment, these seem painful. You should rejoice in, in the knowledge of their final result. You rejoice that even in difficulty, you have the Holy Spirit working in you, giving you strength to endure them, that you have been saved through the work of Jesus. Let me ask, do you, do you really want to be refined this way? I know most of us here, we're, we're not into, like, contemporary praise songs, right? But uh, there's one that was, that was popular a while back ago called Refiner's Fire. I don't know if you're familiar with that tune at all, but uh, it, it says, you know, Refiner's Fire, my one heart desire is to be holy. Now, it's kind of, you know, kind of a happy song there, and... and uh, Anyway, maybe, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. But anyway, uh, it has a good message. But I wonder how many who have sung it really know what on earth they're saying. Do you know what you're asking for when you're, when you're, when you're singing that song? You want to be holy, so you want to go through a refiner's fire? You think about this. You know, sometimes maybe that tune is wrong. Sometimes I think maybe it should be a, 
the kids will get a kick out of it. Maybe it should be a heavy metal song or something. It's like you're asking you to go through the fire, right? It's like uh, this is not something that should strike you as pleasant. It's, it's just it's, it's, uh, intense. Not just like, oh, refiner's fire. You know, right? Anyway, it's like you're asking God to refine you by fire. Stick your hand in the fire and you'll find it is not pleasant, right? Um, in any case, are you looking forward to Christ's return that presents... You're looking so forward to, to Christ's return that the presence of these kinds of things in your life don't look so bad. Are you so really eager to become holy, regardless of what it means in the short term? Are you so eager to see the souls come to faith in Christ and be saved that even suffering doesn't seem so bad if it works to achieve this goal? Peter doesn't seek to, to, to play down or the unpleasantness of such things, but calls you to desire God's refining more than the comforts of this world. You know, in Acts, you know, he was persecuted. We have a clear record of that. And uh, at one time, he, well, he was jailed and beaten and let go. He was, they rejoiced for the opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. Now, you also are to rejoice because you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Now, interesting. Yeah, what does that mean? How is it that you participate in the sufferings of Christ? It obviously doesn't mean that Christians somehow endure God's wrath as Christ did on the cross and join in the work of making satisfaction or atonement for the sins of God's elect. Clearly, Christ and Christ alone did this, and no one could help him in that. Now, there are similar phrases in the New Testament, such as in Colossians 1.24, where it says, now, rejoice, now I rejoice, Paul is speaking, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, uh, I do share, I do, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, certainly Paul's suffering didn't help Christ in atoning for sin. Well, so what does Paul mean when he talks about there? Well, in Paul's case, he was saying that his sufferings were for the propagation of the gospel. The phrase Philip was lacking is only used one other time in the New Testament, uh, but a similar term is used in Philippians 4, 17-18. In that passage, Paul is praising God for having receiving, received gifts from the Philippian church through a man named Epaphroditus. There, Epaphroditus was the instrument by which the generosity of the Philippian church was made complete. It was made complete not because Epaphroditus added anything to it, as if he was donating things there, but he delivered it to Paul. He made it available to Paul. And so that way it was completed because now he had received the gifts from the Philippian church. Now, as Piper, John Piper has noted in Colossians, what Paul has filled up in regard to Christ's afflictions was not regard to propitiation, but to propagation. Paul completed Christ's Affliction in that he suffered to bring the gospel to unbelievers that God's elect might be gathered from the nations and God's church built up. Now looking back in our text in 1 Peter, uh, there is no doubt a similar kind of meaning. Uh, the emphasis here, though, is, is though, is not so much on reaching the lost, uh, uh, though no doubt their faithfulness to Christ before the unbelieving world was 
was a powerfully used by God for that purpose. <clears throat> but rather, it is the application or delivery of Christ's work um, to and into the lives of these believers as they follow in the footsteps of his suffering. Suffering along Christ, united to Christ, in the likeness of Christ, for the sake and honor of Christ, is a means by which the Lord fills up what is lacking in you. And in that way, you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So in other words, <clears throat> through these sufferings that you endure in this life, Christ applies his work to your life. He delivers that grace, that work on, his, on your behalf that was done for you, <coughs> to your life. Just a second here. And through these difficult experiences, you are assured that having participated in Christ's sufferings, that you will be overjoyed when Christ returns. <coughs> in verse 14, uh, it seems to, to sum up the, uh, to, 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 to up the ante a little bit more. It says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This expands... <coughs> Uh, on what Peter said earlier in 3.14, where he says, but even if you suffer for doing right, you are blessed. Now, how on earth can this be true? Being reviled or insulted certainly does not seem like much of a blessing that anyone would want. Our text goes on to explain, for the spirit and glory of, the, of, of, the, <clears throat> of God rests on you. Now, isn't it true that the spirit and glory of, of God rests on all believers? Well, it's certainly true for all believers, uh, but it seems that there, it, it, it does so in a very in a deeper sense or different, deep, a deeper way for those who suffer for the name of Christ. Certainly, as we endure difficulties, we can be reminded of the, the presence of Christ in our life, and we're in, 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 encouraged through our difficulties to cry out to God and reach out to him for grace, greater grace and strengthening. There are other passages in the New Testament <clears throat> that might be helpful here, and I will look at only one of them in Mark 13, 11, which it says, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. So in, that, in this passage, <clears throat> as in, in others, including our text, there is a special reassurance of the presence of the Spirit for those who are in one way or another suffering under persecution. The implication then here is that there is a special indwelling, a special relationship, a special intimacy that believers have with the Lord through the Spirit who upholds them in times of distress. And so you can rejoice when you are insulted because you can be assured that you are experiencing that special time, a special time with God if you suffer for his name's sake. Now, sort of an aside here, uh, maybe not totally tangential, but maybe, uh, the, the reference here to glory probably is a reference to Christ, who is the glory of the Father. And if that's the case, you can see a Trinitarian reference in this passage, the Lord referring to the Father, glory to Christ, and the Spirit, of course, to the Holy Spirit. And so the encouragement that you can draw from this is that not only the Holy Spirit, but in fact all three members of the triune God are upholding you in such time. So therefore, do rejoice, for you're blessed even when you encounter these difficulties. 
But then don't suffer as a criminal or a meddler. Verse 15 says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a, a troublesome meddler. And this expands on something that Peter stated in, in 1 Peter 3, 17, where he says it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good and then for doing evil. But do you think really that these Christians to whom Peter's writing are, are likely to be those who would continue to commit such evil acts as murder or theft or other crimes against society or the state that would, would justly put them in jail? Well, maybe there's a, a few of them amongst them that, that might be like that, but, but likely you ought to see that the emphasis of this verse on the last phrase, you know, suffering as a troublesome meddler, or just a meddler. The, the word meddler in Greek is, is actually an odd one. As far as anyone knows, here in Peter's letter, right here, this is the first time that this word was ever used in the Greek language. It may have been that Peter made up this word, just like I made up strange eyes earlier today. All right. The only way that we know its meaning is that a few Greek Christians later used this word, probably learning it from this spot in 1 Peter. Basically means someone who interferes with other people's business. Now the question is, how would this get anyone in trouble with the law? Well, if there are a number of things that you could imagine that they could, uh, particularly if people were overzealous and were meddling with the affairs of, of government officials or the leaders of false religious sects and stirring up trouble with them. You might think, oh, well, they're the enemy. Why not go trouble them? Interfere with their uh, assemblies. And um, if they trouble us, why not trouble them back? Let's interrupt their assemblies for the sake of Christ and preach the gospel to them. Be a witness. So you ought to, ought not to, ought to be careful about uh, being a meddler or even general irritant to those around you. Um, uh, even if we think it's uh, for the name of Christ. I mean, we, we can sometimes encounter Christians that seem to just an, delight in no, annoying people in the name of Christ. Um, there is a time and place to stand firm and live for the proclamation of the gospel with force, even when it can bring you into confrontation that will even bring about your earthly demise. But there are at least sometimes or some situations where you, you shouldn't. So don't suffer as a criminal or a meddler. But don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian and do or but do praise God. If you do appropriately proclaim the gospel and are imprisoned for it, Peter exhorts you not to be ashamed. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in his name. Now, it's not hard to imagine why uh, someone to whom Peter was writing would feel maybe a little bit embarrassed or ashamed for having been put in jail for being a Christian. Uh, think about yourselves in your own home community. <clears throat> Have you ever been to jail? What would others think if you, they found out you had a prison record? Now maybe you, you, if you went to a mission trip to some country like China or something like that and, and, uh, or some other restricted country and <clears throat> you, you got put in jail for a little bit and, and got out, well, it made me make a good story to tell people uh, uh, back home. But what if you're arrested in your own home community by your own government where you'd grown up and 
where you had lots of friends and, and relatives and so forth. This would have been the situation which many faced in Peter's day when, when they were converted to Christianity and lived a life apart from, separated from, the rest of the people in their day. But rather than embarrassment is that they had really done something wrong, they were to praise God for the great privilege of suffering for the name of Christ as a Christian. Now, the, <clears throat> the name Christian, you might be aware, was, was coined in Antioch by unbelieving Gentiles, actually as a derogatory term. And maybe something equivalent like Christ freak or, or Christ jerk or Christy or something like that uh, to, to sort of look down on, on these believers in Christ. Yet, Paul calls upon his listeners, calls you even, to, use this, to own this name as a high title <clears throat> because it identifies you with your great and wonderful Savior. Just in Western countries, a woman takes uh, her, hus her husband's last name when they get married to identify herself with her husband and her family, his family. Verse 17 goes on to say, For it is time for judgment to begin with, or maybe probably rather, rather than with, it should say from, the household of God. Now, you should be clear here that it says judgment and not punishment. Okay, This judgment, while beginning with Christians, will move out from them who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. It is true that Christians that are being discussed here are being refined by fire to purge them from their sinful nature. It's also true that this chastisement is certainly part of what Peter is referring to here in this verse. <clears throat> it is also true that in the Old Testament, there are a number of verses such as Jeremiah 25, 29, that speak in a similar way regarding Israel when it is cl clear that punishment for sins is clearly in view. However, that's not, uh, that, however in their cases, it was clear that these so-called people of God had no real love for him, and there's no real notion of that here. Now, the choice of the word judgment here does not so much call into, the, into mind the idea of punishment for the believer, since the judgment, uh, in the judgment they will be vindicated. Although verse 18 says that it may be hard for the righteous to be saved, they still will be saved from the judgment to come. Christians may not be condemned by the judgments of the world, they may be condemned by the judgments of the world, but they will be counted holy and exonerated in the sight of God and be allowed to enter into heaven on the basis of Christ's work for them. But those who have turned their back on God, his Christ, his people, those who have persecuted the faithful, those who have not obeyed the gospel of God, their doom will be severe. Paraphrasing Proverbs 11.31, verse 18 says, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore you do not be ashamed in such time. Those who persecute you are the ones who should be ashamed. And they ultimately will be judged for their sin. And so you should praise God for his mercy to you. Finally, then, do commit your souls to God while doing good. Brings us to verse 19, which says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Maybe we think about enduring these 
persecution or difficulty for the name of Christ, and we think, I can't do that. Uh, I, I think I'm going to fail. I'll become weak. I'll be, I just won't be able to do it. Well, it's true. You can't do that of yourself. It's only through the, the work of Christ and through his grace that it empowers you that you can. And that is our great hope. So as you read this text, as you notice that there's this phrase, according to God's will. In this case, it's clear that the suffering according to God's will refers to Christian suffering for their faithfulness in following God's revealed will or his commandments. It does not suggest that there are some people who suffer as Christians in some ways beyond God's control. And that there are others that, that, that God has planned for them to suffer. No, everything is under God's sovereign control. God is sovereign, guiding and controlling all the events of history for his own glory and for his ultimate good of his people. Just as we read about the, or discussed this morning, our, our great hope is in Christ. And he has a plan, a good plan for all of his people. And so we have good reason to have hope. Though the world may mean persecution for evil, God means it for good, just as in the case of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 50-20. Our passage refers to God here as your faithful creator. In the New Testament is very uncommon for God to be referred to as creator. And no doubt this is, this is intended to call to mind the power of God, who is able to call into existence all things out of nothing. Therefore, you have every reason... To believe that being that he is faithful, that he will call goodness out of your suffering. And he will give you the strength and the power to endure whatever suffering and difficulty that you face for being a Christian. For this reason, you may rest your confidence on your sovereign Lord in any circumstances, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. You can and should entrust yourselves to him. Because he has the power to rescue from the, you from these things and help you to endure, even if you, by yourself, do not. The Greek word for entrust here is the same the one that Jesus uttered in his last words on the cross. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, in Luke 23, 46. It implies an utter trust in the Lord, knowing that whatever happens, God will take care of things and work them out for your own good. Our calling is not to worry or to compromise, but to keep on doing good and trusting ourselves to God. Doing good often comes with a painful price tag, but you must trust God that the suffering that you may incur is God's good plan for you. You must not turn away, whatever the cost, from doing good and trusting God. So do commit your souls to God Well. Doing good. In closing, there is a uniting theme of the passage in 1 Peter leading up to this one. That uniting theme really is the same one for the whole book of 1 Peter, and that is being equipped for suffering for the sake of the gospel. If you are armed with the attitude of the Almighty, of, uh, with the attitude of Christ, you can have victory over persecution and submit yourselves to the dues and don'ts of persecution with joy. If you do know Christ by faith in his saving blood, to live or die with Christ is truly joy. It is to bear the holy name and royal name Christian. Therefore, death holds no fear for you. 
And you may, and indeed must, boldly live and die for the wonderful privilege of building God's kingdom. Do have faith in Christ. Do live a life for Christ. And do not be afraid. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Father in heaven, we come before you acknowledging that we often are afraid. That we're often timid in the face of persecution or the possibility of friction with unbelievers. Uh, Lord, we don't wish to live out the gospel sometimes or uh, make known that we believe in the gospel because we know that that will cause some kind of discomfortable relationship with others or even bring about some sort of persecution. Father, forgive us for this sin and enable us by our, your spirit to live boldly for your name and your kingdom. Father, as we read these words, sometimes they seem like far-off things, people being persecuted in other lands that don't occur in this land. But, Father, help us to see that even little things in this life, in this land, that cause us difficulty because of our stand for Christ are, are part of uh, this uh, uh, promise, in fact, that, that the Scripture has, that we will endure persecution for your name's sake. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will give us grace by your Spirit that we might endure uh, suffering boldly for your name's sake, that we might build up your kingdom and glorify your name. Oh, Father, we know we are sinners. We need your strengthening, your grace, because without it we can do nothing right. And so we plead for that grace and strengthening. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>